From the Jewish Federation of Florida's Gulf Coast, this is the Parsha Pathways Podcast. Dive in to the weekly Torah portion led by rabbis local to Florida's Gulf Coast, Pinellas Pasco, and Hernando Counties. Participate live every Friday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time via Zoom. Visit jewishgulfcoast.org slash Parsha to learn more. No, thank you very much. Always a pleasure to be back at Parsha Pathways. Really excited to teach a little Torah. And it's just really fantastic to have this opportunity. Thank you, Kara. (laughs) Great to have the opportunity uh, to be with you all uh, to study one of my favorite Torah portions. We're back in the beginning of the Torah, Simcha Torah, a little while back. So we did Bereshit. Now we're up to... Noah, right? And so Noah is a fantastic story. It's one that we've all sort of learned as children. You know, Noah builds the ark two by two, the dove, the rainbow, the flood, the whole thing, you know, and so we don't have to do a whole discourse to summarize the Torah portion. We're going to dive into a little bit of interpretation uh, on Noah and his righteousness, uh, because this is a really interesting point of contention in rabbinic literature was, was Noah a mensch or not so much, you know? And so we're going to sort of play with that idea looking from different sources and maybe having a discussion on what it really means to be a mensch, a righteous person in the world. So with all of that said, I am going to share my screen and hopefully have success. Huzzah! There we go. It does work. Uh, now you can view my screen, Parsha Pathways, The Righteousness of Noah. So we have early on, so we have, of course, the Adam and Eve sort of narrative, creation narrative, and it didn't work out so well, you know, right? It didn't really work for for God and for humanity. Adam and Eve, you know, they eat the fruit of the forbidden tree and they ruin it for everybody. And we're all out of the Garden of Eden. A couple generations pass uh, and humanity isn't doing so well again. There's lots of lawlessness, lots of problems in the world, right? And so we're gonna sort of dive in to see what's going on, how that relates to Noah and his reaction. Before we do so, before we actually dive into the text, let's say the blessing together for the study of Torah. Last three words, la'asok bedivrei Torah. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok bedivrei Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, ruler of the universe, who sanctifies us with mitzvot, and commands us to engage in the study of Torah. Let me see, there we go. So, first line of the portion uh, is the line we're gonna study. Ele toldot Noach, Noach ish tzadik tamim haya bedorotav, et Elohim hitalech Noach. This is the line, the generations, the story of Noah. Noah was a holy, righteous man. He was blameless in his age. Noah walked with God. Sounds pretty good. If you're going to be a hype man for Noah, this is a very good introduction. Like he wouldn't have anything to complain about. He's a righteous person. He walked with God. He's blameless. How can that be taken poorly? You know, it sounds like a really good thing. But the rabbis focus on this phrase, Hayabidorotav, that Noah was a blameless 
in his age. You know, so what does that mean? It could just have said, Noah was wholly righteous. He walked with God, you know, but they say this phrase in his age is problematic and or interesting, depending on how we want to look at it, right? So what does it mean that he was blameless in his age? So now we're going to dive into sort of that phrase uh, and the phrase of in his generations, you know, in his time. So hold on, I have to just... What I'd like to do, uh, of course, in these moments is not to have only myself read all this good stuff, but to have some uh, audience participation here, make more of a classroom kind of environment, even on Zoom. And so if your video is on, uh, I'm likely going to ask you to read. So if you want to hide from me, you can do that too, I guess. But it's more fun if we all see each other uh, and get a chance to study together. So uh, Steve, uh, would you like to unmute, please, and give that a read? What is meant by in his generations? Some interpret it to his credit and others to his discredit. Righteous in his generations, but not in others. To what may this be compared? If a man places a silver coin among copper coins, then the silver appears attractive. So Noah appeared righteous in the generation of the flood. Others interpret it to his credit. How so? It may be compared to a jar of balsam placed in a grave and it gave off a goodly fragrance. Had it been in the house, how much the more so? Indeed, thank you so much for that. So they give you sort of two sides of the argument here uh, in this midrash, in this commentary. So they're saying, oh, well, wait a minute. Noah was righteous because he's a silver coin sort of amongst all of the copper coins. And yeah, compared to the copper, he's great. But what, what is silver not? gold right it's not gold so he's like better than you know but it's like sort of being the world's smartest horse like it's great but like there are smarter things you know in the world right and so noah's good but eh, he's fine you know it's like but he's he's surrounded by schwach you know and so it's easier to stand out if you're surrounded by not so great things comparatively but if he was somewhere else maybe he'd just blend in with the rest of the silver coins or be compared to worse with the gold coins that are there, right? So he's fine, you know, not thrilling, but nice, you know? And so then the next one comes in here, they disagree and say, wait a minute, maybe he's like perfume. He's a jar of balsam that is placed in a really sort of smelly kind of place. You know, it's not in the best environment, but you can still smell it and how wonderful and how beautiful it smells. So if you put it somewhere else in a better environment, it would be even better smelling, right? You know, because it wouldn't be surrounded by the stench, right? So you have to almost imagine like a, a, a flower, you know, uh, the idea that like the rose would smell even sweeter if it's in a better environment, but it can still smell sweet even in a rotten environment. So the idea being is, what do we believe? He's either surrounded by terribleness and his righteousness stands out even more so because if he was surrounded by better folks, you know, he'd be even better. He'd be lifted up higher. Or he's just good in comparison, you know, because everyone else is terrible. And so because he's less bad, you know, that means he's the righteous one in his generation. But if he were surrounded by other great folks, he wouldn't stand out, you know, as well. He'd just sort of be ho-hum. He wouldn't be anything special worth talking about, having a whole Torah portion about. You know, he was just meh. You know, so it's one or the other. Either he is sort of mediocre or he is so great, right? He is so wonderful that he would even stand out even more if he was in a different age. 
So that that's the the argument the rabbis are having here uh, about his righteousness, his greatness. Rashi, you know, uh, you know, another medieval commentator sort of piles on a little bit and gives us a similar uh, concept here, a similar, a similar idea, but without the fun metaphors, uh, you know, for this. Uh, Leslie, would you like to unmute and give that a read? In his generations, some of our rabbis interpreted creditably. How much more righteous would Noah have been? had he lived in a righteous generation. Others interpret it discreditably. He was righteous compared with his generation, but had he lived in Abraham's generation, he would have been, he would have been considered as not. Yeah, nothing, exactly, because Abraham, that's, that's the bar, right? That's the, the, the status that we were looking for here, someone as awesome as Abraham, you know? I sometimes think about this. I'm not sure how many NFL fans are on this, uh, this call, but the idea that like you can have a mediocre quarterback or a quarterback who seems mediocre because his supporting cast is so terrible. Like it's hard to throw passes and you're constantly getting sacked and constantly getting hit, you know, but if you were surrounded by good, you know, and, and, and better players, then maybe you can play a better quarterback position. So like the people around us impact us. We don't live in a vacuum. Right. And so Noah being surrounded by wickedness, his righteousness is either better by comparison because it's hard to be righteous in a world of wickedness or just compared to all of the wicked people, he's just sort of better than, you know, he's a C student in a, in a D minus world, uh, you know, and that's, that's better. You're grading on a curve for Noah, you know, so maybe, maybe not. So that's sort of Rashi's take again, gives us a very straightforward explanation. Um, Rashi, you know, has more to say. Rashi talks a lot. He's got a lot to, you know, uh, to commentate upon. And so Rashi gives us another little uh, hint here into some of his insights. Uh, Bev, you want to give that a little uh, little read? It's got to unmute there. There you are. And I've got a sucker in my mouth. All right. Noah, Noah walked with God, with God. In the case of Abraham, Scripture says in Genesis 24, 40, God before whom I walked. No one needed God's support to uphold him in righteousness. Abraham drew his moral strength from himself and walked in his righteousness by his own effort. Genesis Rabbah 30.10. A little rough on poor Noah, you know, that's a little <laughs> tough of an interpretation, I got to tell you. The idea of Noah walked with God, how Rashi's interpreting this is basically saying that, you know, Noah needed his handheld you know Noah, Noah needed almost like a crutch you know so he's walking with God God is sort of leading him along you know in, in righteousness whereas Abraham Abraham was righteous he didn't need any help he didn't need training wheels Abraham was able to be righteous because that's who he was uh that Abraham had that inner strength inner reserve of morality and ethics and righteousness and he was able to just be a mensch without any extra help, you know, whereas God is sort of uplifting and carrying Noah along. Come on, Noah, you can do it. Let's go, let's go, you know, a little, little faster into the, that the lane of righteousness. Any questions so far? If not, we're going to dive into a little deeper texts here. We're going to talk about the mystics for a second, you know. So uh, we've all heard, uh, I think, of Kabbalah, you know, the, the Jewish mystical practice uh, and philosophy, uh, you know, 16th century and onwards uh, in terms of its 
as it comes into prominence in Sfat. So the texts that we have here written a little earlier, the Zohar are written in the 13th century CE in Spain. Uh, you know, and then later on again, it, it gets transported to Israel, to Sfat, uh, where again, the mystical movement really took off. Well, the Zohar really is a mystical midrash. It's a mystical interpretation of the Torah. So it really goes portion by portion and interprets it in a different way. And some of the texts are easier to play with than others. And this is thankfully one of the easier ones uh, comparatively because it doesn't get too uh, deep into mystic thought. Uh, but it imagines uh, a conversation uh, between Abraham and God and Noah and God on this question of, the righteousness uh, of Noah. Uh, and so, David, you want to pick up here an Abraham approach? Abraham approached and said, will you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Said Rabbi Yehuda, who has seen, who has seen a father as compassionate, compassionate as Abraham? Come and see, regarding Noah, it is stated, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, Behold, I am going to wipe them off the earth. And Noah held his peace and said not. Neither, neither did he intercede. Whereas Abraham, as soon as the Holy One said to him, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and because their sin is so grievous, I will go down and see. Immediately, as it is stated, and Abraham approached and said, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Yeah, this, this is not going to be the crux of the argument here. This comparison between Noah and Abraham. And I got to tell you, Abraham is a pretty high bar, right? Yeah. Like, like that's the issue. It's like any of us had like a uh, like a sibling, you know, who gets, you know, praise showered upon them. And you're sort of little sibling and going, I want some, you know, credit too. That can be a little bit tougher. Or if you have like a friend or a colleague or whatever, it always seems to be like, you know, getting the adulation uh, and who is awesome, you know. And again, not to hop back onto the sports metaphors, but, you know, LeBron James in his prime, you know, and you can say, well, he wasn't as good as Michael Jordan. You know, Michael Jordan is a pretty high bar. You know, if you're if you're second to Michael Jordan, it's not a bad day. If you're having a pretty good career, there's so much you can criticize at that point. If you are entertainer, singer, whatever it is, and you're, you're doing exceptionally and you said, well, you're not. Meryl Streep, you're not uh, whoever it may be, you know, again, like it's a pretty high bar to, 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 to jump over, to hurdle, you know, and so I feel Noah gets a little bit of a short shrift here because he's being compared to really one of the, you know, the most important, most influential, uh, most, you know, praised uh, person in our tradition, you know, you have Abraham, you have Moses, you know, sort of if you're going to do the, you know, Jewish you know, biblical heroes, uh, top 10 list, you know, uh, Abraham and Moses are pretty much going to be one, two in most circumstances, right, in some order. And then so Noah is getting compared to Abraham uh, in this. And I think anyone being compared to Abraham is going to lose a little bit of shine. Uh, and so the Zohar here is, is going to bring that point out and say, well, this is the problem here, you know, that they both had opportunities uh, to demonstrate their righteousness when it comes to what? how they treat, how they value, how they uh, react uh, when destruction is coming upon the earth. Noah, you know, gets the, the, uh, the message from God, hey, Noah, you know, the world sort of stinks. You know, these people are terrible. I'm going to kill them all. Uh, so build an ark, save yourself, save your family. And Noah goes, sure, <laughs> no 
okay? You know, Noah doesn't really respond you know, verbally, but Noah, through his actions, he builds the ark, you know, collects two by two, gets all the animals going, uh, takes his family and says, see you later, suckers, you know, and he's, he's off in the boat, right? And, and everyone else, not so much. Abraham, when he's told about Sodom and Gomorrah, like these two wicked cities, God is saying, okay, well, these two cities, they're terrible. They're, they need to be wiped out. But you know what? I'm going to check in with Abraham, see what he thinks about it. You know, I'm going to have a little conversation first. And so Abraham gets this you know, message that God's ready to blow up these two cities. Uh, and Abraham says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Time out. Let's take a step back, you know, and begins to debate, begins to argue with God. And say, hey, God, what if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom? Uh, you're going to wipe out these cities if, if there are 50 righteous people? And God goes, ah, oh, Abraham, this is a good point. I'm not going to wipe out the city if there are 50 righteous people. And Abraham bows up a little bit. And, you know, He's already walking, I think, maybe on thin ice. But, you know, Abraham's going to give it a shot. What about 40? And God says, oh, I'll save for the sake of the 40. And this keeps going. I think, again, we know this story goes down 10. Can I get a minion? Can I get a minion of righteous in Sodom? Can I get my 10 people? And God says, fine, for the sake of the minion, it's fine. For the sake of the 10, uh, we won't destroy. Of course, again, Abraham's efforts are for naught because we can't find 10 righteous uh, in Sodom anyway. So it does wind up getting blown up. But at least Abraham gave it an effort. He took a shot here. You know, it might not have been successful, but he gave it his all. He spoke truth to power, at least in his vision, right, of, of speaking truth and saying, is it not? you know, unjust for you to destroy all of these people, all these cities, uh, if we can find righteous people in them. He has the conversation. He has the argument. Noah, no. Noah has no conversation with God. Noah has no discussion. He doesn't say, wait a minute, maybe not everyone is so bad, you know, or maybe we can find some way of, um, of redeeming, you know, these people. Are we going to give it any conversation at all, any effort, or is it a lost cause? Is it fait accompli that these people can't be saved, aren't worth saving, right? But Noah doesn't make any effort. He doesn't say anything. He holds his peace, as it says in this text here, doesn't intercede, doesn't stand up for, for the people around him, just saves himself. He cares about his own hide, his own skin, uh, him and his family. And then they get on the, uh, the Carnival Cruise uh, arc here and uh, floats away with the animals. It had a really great petting zoo on the ark uh, until it doesn't because you have to make sure which animals you can pet. There are lions and tigers on this ark. So, you know, those aren't so good for the petting zoo. But you have a whole cavalcade of animals and his family, you know, searching for higher ground, so to speak, you know, uh, on the boat, saving themselves without really giving it a thought uh, to maybe save other people. So that's where the Zoar comes in on this. Uh, what do we think here? Uh, do we have any thoughts here on on this debate between uh, Noah and Abraham? Are we being too hard on good old Noah? Hey, David, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, yes, you're being they're being hard on on Noah, but uh, I mean, so you compare us to Abraham with Sodom and Gomorrah, but if you compare Abraham with in the Akedah, Noah seems to be doing the same thing, accepting God's word, mm -hmm. and uh, you know. And then being passing, you know, they say Abraham passed the test, right? That was yeah. the test. And, uh, yeah, you know, I guess it depends on what episode of Abraham's life, because it seems like Noah, 
acted consistent with what Abraham did with the Akedah by accepting God's word and, and you know, uh, not not objecting. And that was his son. And it was yeah. it was going to be death and all. So, I mean, you know, you get to pick and choose, I guess. Get to pick and choose a little bit. Right. The Abraham of the uh, Akedah, you know, the, the, this is only a test. You know, what a terrible test. But it's only a test. Abraham, OK, sure. You know, you know yeah, take right. to the yeah, mountain. So, uh, yeah, and doesn't really say boo, you know, in that moment either. Right, so, um, yeah. Yeah, Steve? It also seems to me like um, Abraham had a much longer and more intimate relationship with mm. God than Noah had. I mean, the whole the whole episode from from the beginning of, of the chapter until the flood happening is only a few verses. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, God has already said to Abraham, you know, go forth to a land where I'll, where I'll, I'll lead you. And you'll be the father of of uh, a great house, um, and so you know Noah. I think we just got slapped upside the head and said, "Here's what's going to happen." Um, it, that, that's not what happened with Abraham. No, you're right. We have more, uh, you know, of the relationship between Abraham and God. Not to mention the covenantal relationship. You know, it, it, it is revealed, it, it is discussed. Before we get to any of this Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, business. So we don't have that with Noah. You know, we, we don't have any sense of conversation that have happened previously. We just get God telling Noah, hey, time to pack it up and uh, get on the boat. Uh, but we don't have a sense of, of any kind of previous encounters. We just have this. We just have the first like thing that we hear from God to Noah is I'm going to destroy the earth. And I, and I got to tell you, you know, taking even a, a further step, when we see Moses, you know, uh, uh, and the people throughout the wanderings in the wilderness, when, you know, the people uh, who, you know, maybe aren't always so pleased to be wandering in the wilderness, you know, when, when they raise a kerfuffle, you know, when they sort of challenge and argue uh, with God, it doesn't end well for them either, you know, uh, you know, and so there's a risk. Uh, is what I would say to that encounter, that that discussion, when you are actually debating, arguing, pushing back against God. You know, like, like that's not an easy thing to do. And Abraham, you know, which is why the text is so fascinating with Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham definitely tiptoes around this. Like Abraham is, is not like, hey, what are you doing? You know, Abraham, like, oh, if it be your will that we think about this, and if it's in your favor, and you're so great and awesome, blah, 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 blah maybe consider this, <laughs> you know, in order to uh, engage in that conversation with God, because to say, hey, God, this is a terrible idea, like, doesn't sound like that would be met very well uh, by God. So uh, it's it, it's tricky business. And I think that's what makes, that's what I think makes the challenge with Noah, I think, even more difficult to comprehend, is that, again, like, what do you want him to do? You know, like, He's there, and God tell him to do this. And what's he going to say? No, no, thank you. That sounds like a terrible idea. You know, like maybe uh, he could do that, but it is asking a lot, I think, of Noah. Any other thoughts, here, David? Yeah. I, a, another thought is that I mean, if you look at, let's say, take our forefathers in this country, like Thomas Jefferson, right? He owned slaves. He kind of fooled around, but he's thought up real highly in his age, right? Yeah. So how do we know whether he's, uh, you know, you put him nowadays, uh, he would be bad, good or, you know, what, what I mean, it's really hard to 
transpose someone from one age to another and presuppose what would happen. And so yeah. I, I think that's really being tough on sort of the same thing on Noah by saying, well, you know, he was okay. He was excellent in his own age, but if you put him in a, 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 a later age, <laughs> he wouldn't do so good. Well, I mean, how do we know? You know, how, like you said, how do we know the tide wouldn't lift him up and he'd see like Thomas Jefferson, see what, how bad slavery was and, you know, and, and, and adultery or whatever and, yeah. and act differently. You know, I, it's just, I think it's a hard thing to do. And I know the rabbis are trying to get over, you know, messages a lot of time, teach rather than, um, you know, in their interpretation like in the Zohar, but it just seems like it's tough to, uh, to judge how Noah would act in a different age. I think it's a very interesting conversation because, I mean, certainly you mentioned Jefferson, but you sort of think about the morality and the mores, you know, of society and how they evolve. Right. And, you know, people who are menchie, so to speak, as you're, as you're pointing out, maybe in the late 1700s uh, or, or considered to be like these great people, they might have some problems acting the same way in the 21st century, uh, to yeah. say the least. Uh, and, but even as things progress, uh, you know, and then I think, again, that, that's part of the challenge, the cultural challenges, you know, that, that we might have societal challenges that uh, an example that I've given more than once, you know, is, um, you know, the cartoon, the Disney cartoon, Peter Pan, right? You know, and so that, that's something that I grew up with, to be sure. I don't know when it came out, but like, you know, it's an older sort of Disney film. And if you rewatch that film as an adult, there are some parts that are a little cringy. <laughs> When it comes to, you know, what makes the red man red, you know, and some of these sort of like depictions of, of, of Native American experiences. Yeah, but then you think, well, the people who were writing this movie back then, were they thinking about, you know, what we would think about some of these terms, some of these usages in 2020, you know, 2022? It's an interesting debate, I, I, I think, you know, about, you know, Again, movies, uh, you know, you know, TV shows, songs, that's certainly one thing. But then even further, when it comes to like, if you were, you know, not racist, uh, but only homophobic, so to speak, in the 60s, you were probably like a mensch, you know, because you were at least better off. It was like the Noah argument, like you were better than some of the other stuff that was there. But were you great? Were you righteous if you were only somewhat terrible? You know, but that's also by our own uh standards right our own sort of morality you know at, at this point right uh that people's ideas and opinions about things that are are thought of differently now you know depending and by the way I'm, I'm generalizing i want to be clear you know that I'm, I'm making a general statement but you know that how people thought about certain things how we felt about certain things a hundred years ago is different than we feel about them now society you know as a society or not but i'm just saying that there's you know things change through time and to hold Noah to, uh, you know, the standard of Abraham is tough and told to Noah to today's standards might be tough, especially for a fictional character <laughs> that, or, you know, we don't have any historical proof of Noah, so to speak. So it's more of a philosophical debate on his character. Um, you know, getting into a different sort of tack, uh, going back into my, another comfort zone for me is sports. I always have the Babe Ruth debate with my students, right? Babe Ruth was not exactly the most most uh, athletic dude back when he was playing baseball, right? You know, this guy was 
a heavy set guy, you know, living on beer, hot dogs, and other things that might have not been so wholesome. And he was hitting home runs left and right. You know, uh, he was so far above and beyond any player who ever lived at that point in time. And as a comparison to him to other players of his generation, you know, he was amazing. If you put Babe Ruth today in 2022 against, you know, Justin Verlander or, you know, you know, the top sort of pitchers today, would he even be able to hit the ball? You know, would he be able to hit a hundred mile an hour fastball coming at him, you know, or a slider or some of these like, like pitches that he wasn't facing? I don't know. He might not have made it past double A baseball or maybe he would have. I don't know. It's hard to tell. I'm thinking his or, or going back to Noah, you know, again, if he was in this generation or his conditioning be better, you know, as an athlete, you know, would he be hitting the gym a little more than hitting the bar? You know, like, like, like would, would Babe Ruth of today be a, a tremendous athlete because he's surrounded by it was that culture. If he wanted to be good at baseball, he'd have to work at it differently, you know, in the, in the 21st century. So maybe he would be great. Maybe he'd hit a thousand home runs. You know, uh, if he was a uh, uh, alive today as a pro, we don't know. I think he'd be terrible. <laughs> That's my guess. My guess is that he would be god awful. Uh, so, so there yeah. shouldn't be, there shouldn't be any asterisks, right? Yeah, exactly. No, look, we, we play in the generations we play in. You know. Right. So, so is it so hard trying to put an asterisk there? I think so. Uh, well, I, I think we'll get to the, we're going to actually get to the asterisks in, in a second. <laughs> I think we have another reading coming up that actually does put that on there a little bit more. Um, uh, but but yeah, I mean Barry Bond, like you know, I'm a Yankee fan, you know, and I love Aaron Judge. He got, he got 62 home runs, and there are people who say, well, he's the home run king now because he did it clean. You know, he, there's no evidence of any steroid use, whereas with Sosa and Bonds, you know, there's been enough smoke you know where we, we sort of have a sense that they both were were on steroids but the reality is is that they both hit more home runs than Aaron Judge you know like they both have more uh and so asterisk no asterisk they they played in the era that's what it was and they were also batting against pitchers who were probably juiced up too you know and so there was a societal or better said in baseball you know culture eh. I don't know, you know, and so <laughs> righteous in their generation, but maybe not so righteous in other generations. Right. Don't do steroids. Hi, I'm Maxine Kaufman, Executive Director of the Jewish Federation of Florida's Gulf Coast, and I'm quickly interrupting this episode to tell you a bit about the organization that brings you the Parsha Pathways podcast. Welcome to the world of the Jewish Federation, where the Jewish values of compassion, charity, generosity, and responsibility inspire us to improve the quality of life for people in our community, in Israel, and around the world every day. It is time to meet the challenges of modern Jewish life, both at home and overseas, and to provide the financial resources needed to fund the many services, programs, and activities that are demanded of us to sustain and continue to grow a strong, vital, and vibrant Jewish life. Programs like Parsha Pathways are brought to you free of charge, but donations are always welcome. Visit jewishgulfcoast.org donate to learn more. 
Okay, so our next reading we have here. Uh, I see Beth. Uh, Beth, would you like to read a little bit? Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Then God said to Noah, leave the ark. How did the Holy One of Blessing respond to Noah when he had left the ark, saw the world destroyed, and began to cry? Noah said, ruler of the universe, you are called merciful. You should have been merciful to your creatures. The Holy One responded by saying, foolish shepherd, now you say this. Why didn't you say this when I said to you, for I have seen that you are righteous before me. Or again, when I said, look here, I am bringing a flood of water. Or again, when I said, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. At any point I could have delayed and said to you, I will refrain because you asked for mercy for the entire world. And a result of this decision, it would have been saved by repentance, but it did not enter your mind to ask for mercy for the civilized world. Had you done so, it would have been saved. But now that the world is destroyed, you open your mouth to complain to me with weeping and supplication. That's right, Noah. Hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, if you wanted to uh, avoid this, maybe open your mouth a little bit. Uh, that's what God is saying here uh, in a little more of a verbose uh, way. But this, that, it's very good. Thank you. I mean, this is imagining the actual conversation. I give Noah a lot of credit. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm sort of a Noah fan in my own way. I don't, you know, the comparison's tough. I can understand that. But poor Noah, you know, he has this moment where he, he and his family are on the ark. It's 40 days and 40 nights of rain. It could not have been a fun experience. This was not a pleasure cruise. You know, like this was not a fun time on that ark. And then he gets off the ark. And what does he see? He sees death. He sees destruction. destruction, right? Like, like you know, it's a little early in the morning, I guess, to be visceral on this. But I mean, he's getting out of the ark, and there are, are are bloated dead bodies everywhere. You know, I'm guessing on the ground, right? Like, like this is a gross thing to come off to see. I don't know who's burying all these people. I'm I'm, I'm not sure that's Noah or if God's gonna help out with this. But it has to been look like a hellscape when he gets off the uh, the ark. You know, like everything is destroyed. Everything is waterlogged. Everyone is dead. And so he's seeing this and he, he's obviously very emotional. It's like, oh my God, like, you know, maybe he couldn't envision, I guess, what would happen uh, when God floods the earth, but it couldn't have been a, a great sight. And it is no coincidence, I might add, that what does Noah first do when he gets off the ark? One of the first things he does is he plants a vineyard and he plants a vineyard because he needs grapes and he needs grapes so he can make wine. He needs wine so he can drink away the pain of this experience, you know, and he gets completely schnookered, you know, and just completely shickered up uh, after this thing, because who can blame him? You know, like, you know, I think I would need a rum runner myself after seeing some of this. Like, this is not a great thing to see. It's very painful, very devastating. And so he is traumatized in this moment. And he's calling out to God going, how could you have let this happen? How could you have done this terrible thing? You know, you're supposed to be merciful. How could this have happened? And then God says, hey, buddy, you know, don't look at me because you could have stopped this if you wanted to. You could have stopped this tragedy. In fact, I gave you opportunities. I gave you prompts almost, you know, and said, OK, you know, I'm going to bring a flood of water. Can't hear you, Noah. 
Nothing? Okay. You know, build yourself an ark. Can't hear you, Noah. You know, like there's no response. But now in the aftermath, you're going to come complain to me. You know, you're going to complain to God about what happened. You could have done something. You could have helped. You could have been a support. But you chose not to. Uh, and so don't point the finger at me. One of the first lessons we learn, and I think this is foundational, you know, uh, uh, that we have three stories that have to be taken together as a grouping, I think. We have the Adam and Eve story. We have the Cain and Abel story. And we have the Noah story. And they're different stories, but each of them are united by the exact same theme, the exact same value, which is accountability, which is responsibility. And it's not a coincidence. It's not, you know, random that these three stories are put together in the very beginning of the Torah, right? Like these are there for a reason to teach that one of the most important values is human responsibility. We have a responsibility to each other, right? And we have a responsibility for our actions. Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit of the tree. And what's the story? You know, God says to Adam, what did you do? And Adam points to Eve. So you gave me this woman. She screwed it up for me. Uh, and then God goes to Eve. Eve, what did you do? And Eve points the finger at the serpent. The serpent's the one who tricked me, right? And God doesn't buy it. God punishes all of them, you know, and says you didn't do the right thing. You weren't responsible. You weren't accountable. But your, your actions have consequences. You know, you can't just blame someone else. Cain and Abel, so the same thing, right? Cain is angry at Abel. You know, God accepts Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. They get upset. You know, Cain gets upset and kills his brother. And God says, hey, what happened? You know, where, where is your brother? And what does Cain say? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. It turns out you are your brother's keeper. You are responsible, you know, for your actions and responsible for how we treat people. And then we get the next story even further that we are actually responsible or can be responsible for the fate of humanity. You know, that if we have the opportunity to speak up and do something that'll help, we have that responsibility, that obligation to stand up and say something. We saw this movie yesterday, The Invisibles. You know, we saw it uh, at the for the Federation sort of movie night. And that was actually one of the last quotes, spoiler alert, you know, from the movie, you know, was the quote from the Talmud, you know, the idea that if you can save one person, you save the world, right? And so we have this responsibility to help uh, out other people. And Noah here falls drastically short uh, in the uh, rabbinic imagination. So I think that's sort of what the rabbis are saying here to counter Noah in a way is that no, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. But as I've said, you know, it is a high bar and you know, Noah here and in this next Midrash, you know, they, they try to cut Noah a little bit of slack, you know, because again, as I said, you know, we can smack around Noah a bit, you know, but maybe also there's another idea, another interpretation about Noah, right, that maybe gives him a little bit, you know, let, lets him off the hook, right? And so the rabbis, I think, are cognizant of this difficulty, you know, with, with Noah. And I think they try to give him a break uh, in this other midrash, you know, because they're arguing with themselves, as I've mentioned, you know, uh, on how righteous Noah is. So if we see here uh, this paragraph from Tanchuma, make yourself an ark of gopher woods. That's the, the quote they're playing off of. Rav Chuna said in the name of Rabbi Yossi, 120 years God warned the generation of the flood in the event that they would repent. So 
what, what are they saying right off the bat? The people had an opportunity, right? They had an opportunity to repent. In fact, they had 120 years worth of opportunity to repent, but they didn't. Since they didn't repent, God said to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. So the people did have warning and they weren't listening. You know, so this then gives Noah a little bit of a break because it shows the people who were destroyed had the opportunity to save themselves or they didn't. So after God gives this command to Noah, Noah stood up and repented and planted trees. The people, his neighbors would say to him, what are these trees for? He said to them, God seeks to bring a flood upon the world. And God told me to build an ark for which my family and I will take refuge. So Noah even tells them what's going to happen. Noah warns the people. Noah's a prophet, right, in this context. Noah is like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Noah is warning the folks of what's going to happen. So the people, what did they do? Like with the other prophets. Ah, Noah, you silly so-and-so. This is not something that's going to happen. You're, you're, you're making up all this mishigas. The people joked about him and mocked his words. Oh, Noah, you're just ridiculous. Uh, Noah would water the trees as and they grew, and the people would say to him, what are you doing? And he would reply in a similar manner, and they would also mock, oh, Noah, you're full of it. You know, that's not going to happen. What are, what are you smoking, Noah? This is not going to happen, uh, you know, to us. Then again, same thing. After a while, uh, the text actually says at the end of days, because as I mentioned, it is sort of apocalyptic in the, in the way. It's the end of the world as we know it, and Noah feels fine. Uh, he cut uh, them down and was making them into planks and you know, building the ark. And the people would say to him, what are you doing? You know, and he said to them as above and warned them and they didn't repent once again. And so then eventually God brings the flood, right? And blotted out all existence. And so this Midrash here is trying to show the people who got destroyed, who, who were victims of the flood, weren't really victims at all. They had opportunity to be better. They decided not to, right? You know, the, the warning signs were flashing, you know, the yellow light was on and the people just chose to ignore it and made fun of Noah, you know, and, and didn't listen and, and didn't care uh, and just, you know, went about their daily lives being terrible. Uh, and that doesn't end well uh, for them as it doesn't end well later, you know, in the days of the prophets, as I mentioned, you know, the prophets do the same thing, do better. Repent, you know, you know, change the and what do the people say to the prophets? They say, No, we don't believe you, we don't care, you know. Uh, it caused problems. Uh, and then of course God winds up punishing them uh, for their misdeeds. Any questions? Comment a lot on us. Of a comment. Yeah, David. No, there was a, it kind of reminds me of the, the movie, which is sort of a spoof on climate change. There's a recent movie about a meteor coming to hit the earth. And, uh, you know, the whole earth was warned about it and they had a chance to blow up the uh, meteor, but no one took it seriously and it, it wiped out the earth. And it seems like that's what they were doing a, a play on climate change. I think you're locked. You're locked, though. A hundred percent. Like we have to like take these things seriously when they come, right? And like the warnings are there, right? And I think that's I think that's the problem is is that 
you, you have these folks who are standing up and saying, this is an issue. And then what's the reaction, you know, from everyone else? And I think it just depends on, you know, where people are, right? Uh, and what they believe, what they choose to ignore. And I think uh, for several things, we can see the flashing yellow light. I'll put it that way, you know? Uh, but then some people might say, oh, well, you're alarmist. You know, oh, it's, it's not really as bad. Oh, you're just, you know, you're crying that the sky is falling. It's going to be fine until the sky falls, you know, <laughs> until something actually really bad happens. And then it's, oh, my God, you know, so. But I think, you know, that's that's a, a very interesting idea, an interesting point. Okay. We got a couple more texts to finish up uh, here. We're going to move forward to the Hasidic movement. Uh, we have these two really great Hasidic scholars, one from the, the Ukraine, one from Poland. Uh, this is a fantastic text from uh, Kedushat Levi, uh, from Levi Yitzchak of Berdachev, a very famous uh, Hasidic scholar. And he's going to basically sum up, in a way, what we've talked about, that there are two types of Sadiqim in the world, you know, two types of the righteous in the world. The first serves God just for himself, doesn't get involved with the people to guide them back to the service of God, and that's Noah. The second serves God and tries to guide others to do teshuva and serve God, and that is Abraham. What I think I, about this text, you know, what I love about this text is that he changes, right? Levi Yitzchak changes the argument in a way and says it's not a question of whether Noah was righteous or not righteous and Abraham was righteous. You know, it's not about the comparison about, about whether one was righteous and one wasn't righteous. The idea is that they're both righteous in different ways, right? Because it says there's two types of sadikim. There are two types of righteous people. One is Noah and one is Abraham. And what, at least my reading of it, uh, of Kedushat Levi, which is going to be different than the next reading, uh, is that I don't know from this reading whether um, one is prioritized over the other, at least in a significant way. You know, I, I don't see here necessarily in this text a value judgment uh about it it says that they're both righteous and one of them is righteous in their way and one of them is righteous in another way you know and whether however we feel about that you know that that could be the discussion right that can be a, the, the question um because let, let's you know let, let's give an example here you know there are some jews right we know uh you know there are some jewish people who their idea of their judaism not that it's self-centered in a way uh I, I wouldn't put it that way but it's emphasized the emphasis on prayer you know it's on uh you know ritual mitzvot and that's what's important to them that's how they sort of serve god and there are others who place a greater value on ethical mitzvot and tikkun olam right and there's some obviously who do both you know uh, as well but i think we can say that there are some who say like this is how i serve god is i'm going to study and pray in the yeshiva you know, and I'm going to maybe do some good for the my shtetl, my, my Jewish community, perhaps. But the rest of the world, the outside, you know, I'm not going to break my head about it. You know, like let the world break its own head, you know, as Fiddler has. You know, so that's the that's, I think, the difference. Right. And you have others who say, well, no, that that's not right. You know, we have to be involved with the community. We have to be involved in society. We have to try to work with other folks to create a better world. And that's part of how we're serving God. It's not only about our own redemption sort of and our own connection with God. Uh, but it's also about service to the greater community and perhaps the greater good, if it is in fact a greater good, 
uh, you know, that's what we're supposed to be doing. And so I think that's a fascinating idea of that. It's not one is more righteous than the other, but they are both uh, righteous in their own way. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's Parsha Pathways. We hope that this episode filled your heart, mind, and soul with Jewish wisdom. Don't forget to stop by jewishgulfcoast.org to explore everything that the Federation has to offer. And we look forward to bringing you next week's Parsha. Shabbat Shalom.